read through the writings of the Apostle Paul, you see that over and over he he was straining to find some way to express uh, his feelings in regards to who God is and what God has done. And he just heaps one superlative upon a, upon another, trying to emphasize the you know the greatness of God and the greatness of His grace, and so amazing. Just you know, pretty well uh, sums it all up. Open your Bibles, please, to the Book of Romans, chapter number six. We'll be having a baptismal service immediately following uh, the message this morning, and it so happens that this is what the first part of this chapter deals with. Romans chapter number 6, we begin reading in verse number 1. The text for the message today is verse 4. Verse 1, Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Whenever we use the word salvation to describe what Christ has done for us, that, that word simply means delivered, deliverance. And you think about the condition of the unsaved person. As Paul said, every unsaved person, they're taken captive by the devil at his will. And it's not until that moment that we are saved that we are delivered. That is, that we are enabled to escape the clutches of Satan. We are delivered. I think everybody, uh, you know, enjoys a, a movie or a story that has to do with someone escaping dangerous situations. Uh, I don't know if there is any Steve McQueen fans in here. He, Although he's been dead several years, he has almost a cult-like following of people that uh, loved his movies. But the one that really sticks in my mind was called, I think, The Great Escape. And back in the early 1960s. And, and that story was actually based on a true story, but it was fictionalized so much you well, know, that it didn't much resemble the real thing, but, but it, you know, it had some bare bones basics as to the real story. But in 1939, there was a true story that regarded the British airmen who were being captured by the Germans. And as a result of that, the British began to look for some way to facilitate their escape. And, you know, more than anything, what they really needed were maps. And, you know, how do you get maps in there to prisoners so you can get them out so they'll know where to go after they're, after they're out? And uh, 
someone suggested, you know, printing them on paper in some way, getting them in there, and they decided, well, that wouldn't do any good because the guards would hear the rustling of the paper as they were messing with their maps. And besides that, you know, whenever they got wet, uh, then, you know, it, it wouldn't be any good and so forth. And so someone hit on the idea of using silk, printing those maps on silk. And naturally, you know, it was something that was flexible, small. You could just wad it up and, and put it in something real small. And uh, it was noiseless. The guards couldn't hear that. And so under the strictest secrecy, they decided what they were going to do because Monopoly games and other kinds of games were allowed in the prison camps. Uh, they decided that they would smuggle in the maps by way of Monopoly. They printed the maps that would lead to certain safe houses where they could get back and get supplies and food whenever they finally managed to escape. And they wadded up those little maps printed on silk and put them inside the pieces, the game pieces, uh, to the Monopoly game. In fact, they managed even to include a small compass in the playing token, a little two-part metal file that could be screwed together some way or another, and real German, Italian, and French money hidden within the stacks of the Monopoly money. And so if they could, you know, get across the fence and out of the encampment there, why they had basically what they would need to to get to safety. The British and the American air crews, uh, after the fact, they were all trained in, in, in using this and trained in recognizing the, the Monopoly games that had all of this stuff in it. And, and they did so by using a little red dot that looked like just a, you know, a printing glitch in the corner of the free parking square. And so they see that little red dot there and they know, hey, this is one of those games that's got everything that we need. Now here's the strange thing about what seemed like a wild idea of the 35,000 POWs that escaped, one third of those were aided by these rigged monopoly sets. Think about that. Think about that. Over 10,000 of them were able to get to freedom because of these monopoly sets that had the map that showed the way out. Uh, this worked so well, in fact, that everybody involved in this process was sworn to secrecy. In fact, they thought, you know, it worked so good that maybe... You know, in a future war, we might want to use it. And so they didn't tell anyone. And believe it or not, it wasn't until 2007 that this information was declassified. Think about that for a little while. Now, there's a lot of other details I could go into, but just the, the idea of that, of doing something to facilitate the escape of these POWs. Now, today, I want to talk to you about something considerably different than that, a different great escape, and, and it's no secret. 
Because God has given us the answer as to exactly how we can win against sin. That's one problem that man doesn't have any answer for. It doesn't make it if it's what preacher you go to, what church you attend, what book you read, or what you do. Man has never been able to come up with any kind of a plan whereby we could win against sin. Notice verse 4 again. He says, Therefore we are buried with Him, that is Christ, by baptism into His death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead with the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. And I want you to notice that phrase there, newness of life. According to John chapter 10 and verse number 10, Christ redeemed us that we might have life and that we might have it more abundantly. And here he's talking about walking in newness of life. Now, if that was God's intent, why is it that some continue to live as they did? Think about it. You profess to be a Christian. You even publicly, you know, go through the baptismal waters, showing outwardly what supposedly happened inwardly. You have pictured your intent to walk in newness of life, and yet some keep right on living as they did. Notice in verse number 6, he tells us here that we should not serve sin. Look in verse number 7. He says, we are freed from sin. Notice verse number 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you. So why is it some continue to live as they did? Or to put it another way, why do we settle for a slight improvement? Just a slight improvement. I want to become a Christian so He'll save my marriage. I want to become a Christian so He'll heal my body. I want to become a Christian so, you know, this will happen or that will happen and what have you. And then we go right on, you know, living just like we had been living. Why settle for a slight improvement when we have the whole of Christ's likeness to attain? Now let me tell you, we're all miles away from that. We never get to the place in this life where we can say that we have come to a plateau in life that uh, we have arrived and that there's no more need for spiritual growth. We ought to be growing spiritually until the very day we die because there is more Christ-likeness to be had in all of us. That ought to be our goal. That's why I've often described backsliding like this, that we are backslidden when we cease to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether you're 8 or 80, a Bible scholar or a new beginner or whoever you are, if you're not growing spiritually, you are backslidden. And that's dangerous, folks. You see, Christ isn't just concerned about our redemption. He's also concerned about our relationship with Him after our redemption. In other words, He's concerned about your walk after your salvation. He's concerned about your manner of life. And notice, He's expecting us to walk in newness of life. Have you ever thought about all of the new things that are mentioned in the Bible in regards to our salvation? Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-six says, We receive a new heart. A few chapters later, He says, We receive a new spirit. 
The psalmist says we receive a new song. Amen? Things are different. Revelation says we have a new name. We are a new creation. We are a new creature. We are a new self. And here he's talking about a, in walking in newness of life. That means a life that is totally distinct from the life that we had been living before salvation. And that involves every area of our life. Our character, our conduct, our attitude, our actions, our motives, our manners, our thoughts, words, deeds, everything. Because it's not good enough for us to just excel in one area and fail in everything else. Just because, you know, I excel in one area of my life, that doesn't justify me failing in all of these other areas of life. The very fact that I have been delivered from sin by the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, delivered from its penalty, delivered from its power, the fact that I have pledged through baptism, that I have experienced that, changes the manner in which I live. And that's important because like somebody has said, you're the only Bible some people will ever read. There are some folks, neighbors, relatives, that you'll never ever get to attend this church. You'll never get them to sit down and to read the Word of God. But they're watching you. And you claim to be a Christian, you're the only Bible they'll ever read. God forbid that we send them mixed signals and lead them astray. So we're to walk in newness of life. Now, here's the big question. How do we do that? You know, it's real easy to talk about what we ought to do, and there's no reason for us ever to not know what we ought to do, because the Bible's very clear about it. So here in this chapter, playing off of that statement, newness of life, Paul begins to show us exactly how that happens. And there are three key words that I want you to notice and underline and mark in your Bible. Beginning in verse 6, right down through verse 10, I want you to notice the first word is this, knowing. Knowing this that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing, there it is again, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. So the first key word here, the first step in you and I being able to live in newness of life is knowing. And that speaks about our identification with Christ. As Jesus died, He says, we died. You say, well, I don't understand that. Well, I, I don't either. But that's what it says. When He died, we died. You say, well, I'm not dead. You better be dead to sin. When Christ died on the cross, paying your sin debt, it's as though God saw you in Him. Are you with me? 
He's dying in your stead. You are in Him. He's acting as a, as a substitute, as a representative. And when He died, it's as though you died. In, you know, in, in God's judicial reckoning. Whenever the Bible talks about, you know, God justifying us, somebody says that means just as if I had never sinned. And, you know, that, you know, that's a cute little comment. It doesn't tell it all, but it's as though we have never sinned. But it's because God has imputed to us the righteousness of Christ. Now, we certainly know we aren't as righteous as Christ, are we? Of course not. But God is looking upon us as though we are wrapped in the robe of the righteousness of Christ. And rather than see us, He sees His Son. And that's why He can say that when Christ died, we died. When Christ was buried, we were buried with Him. That is our old man, that that thing, that monster, that vile, filthy piece of human flesh... That when he was buried, we was buried. That old life is gone. And as he arose to walk in newness of life, now we have arisen to walk in newness of life. You see, when Christ got up out of that grave, he is assuring us that he's going to complete what he started. And when he saves us, he imparts his life to us. Because the moment he saves us, all of a sudden, we become what we've never been before. We now have spiritual life in union with Him, and it's that union with Christ that enables us to succeed where we normally would fail. Knowing, now listen carefully, if you don't get anything else, you need to get this. Knowing who you are and what you have as a result of who Christ is and what He has done is the key to everything else in your Christian life. Knowing that. You you see, look, it takes more than knowledge to become a Christian, but you can't become a Christian without knowledge. There are certain things you've got to know. You've got to know you're a sinner. You've got to know Jesus is indeed the Son of God. You've got to, you've got to know what He did. There are certain things that you ought to know, and according to 2 Peter chapter 3 verse number 18, until the day that we die, we're to be growing in the grace and what? And the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's something that should never stop. And when it stops, you stop growing. When you stop growing, you're backslidden and you're in trouble and sin's going to conquer you. So it begins with knowing who you are and what you have as a result of who Jesus is and what He did. But it takes more than just knowing You could memorize everything I've just said. You could memorize the entirety of Romans chapter number 6 and still not live victoriously if it doesn't get beyond that. Notice verse number 11. He just spoke about our identification with Christ, and now he speaks about our appropriation of Christ. Verse 11, likewise, here's the second key word, reckon. 
Reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now that word reckon is a bookkeeping term. It means simply to count on it. It's an expression of faith. It means believing what we know to be true. It's our trust in what God has said. And the only way we can be victorious is what? To embrace by faith what God has promised, to believe that it's possible. And, and, and we're able to be victorious only to the extent that we believe that what God said and what Christ did, and we are expressing that. The Bible says the just shall live by faith. In fact, the Bible tells us without faith it's impossible to please God. And faith doesn't cease the moment you're saved. We are to live by faith. It's, it's the manner in which we walk. Whenever we use the word hope, hope is actually a faith word. It is expressing your faith in the future. The Bible speaks about being saved by hope. But it's not the kind of hope, you know, like, well, I hope it rains tomorrow. There's no uncertainty to it. It is a hope based upon the Word of God. It's your faith in what God promised concerning the future. But this word reckon is your faith in regards to the past. Your belief in what God said concerning things in the past, that it's true. Are you with me? Well, what did he say? Well, he, he said Christ died, and when he died, you died with him. And God said you are to reckon that to be true. You have got to be to the place that you see yourself, you believe, and you embrace that as a fact. Now, I don't know about you, but when I got saved, I had some great feelings. There was feeling involved, but nobody is saved by their feelings. It's the matter of faith. We place our faith in what Jesus Christ did when He died on the cross. And He says, reckon yourself dead to sin so that you can walk in newness of life. Now, i got to tell you, there have been some days. Now, you've heard me say I've never doubted whether I was saved or not, and I haven't. I I don't even understand how people do. I, I, I've never doubted whether I'm married or not. I know I'm married. I, I know I place my trust in Christ and, and He saved me. I, I haven't ever doubted that. But i got to be honest, there's some days when I didn't feel like a child of the King. You know, there's some days, you know, I wow, I, I felt horrible. Felt like I wouldn't make it through the day. But I'm glad I don't have to base my salvation on the way that I feel. I can reckon myself dead to sin and alive unto God. Now notice verse 13. And here's the third key word that you need to remember. It's the word yield. He says, neither... Yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin... Here it is, but yield yourselves unto God 
as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. This has to do with our emancipation through Christ. And make no mistake about it, victory, winning over sin, depends on what God does, but it also depends on what you do. In Keswick, England, many years ago, there was what was called the Keswick Convention. And kind of the whole philosophy of those preachers that attended there was just let go and let God. That we don't have to put forth any effort whatsoever. That sanctification doesn't depend on anything we do. It's just let go and let God, you know. Well, all of that, you know, might sell a lot of books and it might sound super spiritual, but it's absolutely contrary to what the Bible teaches. Victory not only depends on what God does, it depends on what we do. Look in verse number 12 there and notice the little word let. Let not sin therefore reign. You see, that's a reminder that we are responsible While we can't do what God does, God won't do what we can. I've often said, you know, God speeds a little sparrow, but didn't throw the worm in the nest. And God expects there to be an effort on our part. But God is not going to force us against our will. There must be an exercise of our will. He says, let not sin reign. And if you're a Christian... You need to stop all of that nonsense about, well, I couldn't help it. Yes, you could. You sinned because you made a choice to sin. Nobody forced you against your will. He says, let not sin reign. But notice he says, then we are to yield ourselves. God doesn't force us, but we have to exercise our will and yield ourselves. We choose to yield ourselves to God. Notice in verse 13, as instruments of righteousness. Verse 18, as the servants of righteousness. Verse 22, servants to God. Maybe you will remember, I believe it was Bob Dylan that wrote that song, and I'm not recommending him, by the way, but he wrote a song, you got to serve somebody. And, and i got to tell you, for years, I carried, until the flood anyway, I carried a copy of that song in my Bible because it's got some really good words to it, believe it or not. And the fact of the matter is, you got to serve somebody. You say, well, I'm not a Christian, but I'm not going to serve anybody. Oh, yes, you are. You're, you say, well, I'm going to do as I please. No, you're not. Or you may do as you please, but it'll be because that Satan has so blinded you and duped you into believing a lie that you think what you're doing is the thing that's going to bring you happiness, and it won't. Everybody's got to serve somebody. Jesus said, he that's not for me is what? Against me. There's no neutrality, no middle ground. you got to serve somebody. And in order to dethrone sin in your life, you have to enthrone the Savior in your life. You choose. You make a choice that you are going to yield yourself to Him.
And when that happens, you are able to win over sin. The three things that we need in order to win over sin, number one, are the facts. And that's why he uses the word no. You have to have the facts. Secondly is faith, and that's why he uses the word reckon. The third thing we need is faithfulness, which has to do with our obedience to the will of God. And that's why we see the word yield there. If you have the facts and the faith and the faithfulness that you are willing to yield yourself to God, you can win over sin. I, I've often said, I think I was born in the wrong generation. I, you know, I, I, I know that's not really true or I wouldn't be here. But I feel that way sometimes. I can't get used to some of these newfangled ideas like a participation trophy. Huh? Oh, we went to, you know, into a baseball tournament. We won a trophy. What was it? The participation trophy. When I was a kid growing up, you were taught to win. And it was the winner that got a trophy, not the loser. You say, well, we've got to make all the little kids feel good. Let me tell you, you're not doing them any favor in making an impression that this is something that's noteworthy, you know, just because they participated. And let me tell you, when it comes to this matter of sin, and by the way, all those years growing up and playing softball and, and baseball and later bowling, whenever... When, by the time I got saved, I had bunches of trophies, and I still remember the day I decided I'm going to throw them all away, and I did. I had a scrapbook with all of the articles or the pictures that was in the in in the newspaper that had my name or picture in, it and had all of that. We misplaced all of that, but it's all gone and what have you, and you know, and that's fine with me because I'm not I'm not concerned about winning in those things. But I tell you what, I don't want to lose to sin. I want to win over sin. And I can't do it on my own. Neither can you. The only way we can win over sin is to do what the Word of God tells us. Knowing. Get the facts. Number one. Get the facts. We've got too many ignorant Christians today. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, to... You know, to be unkind or anything. It's just a fact. Every Christian ought to be a Bible student. Get the facts. Have the faith so that you can reckon yourself to be dead unto sin even when you don't feel like it. You know that it's possible because Christ is living in you. And then yield yourself unto God. Pastor Stephen Cole told the story... Uh, that I just loved. It was about a, a farmer in a little village in India, and he'd gone to a bazaar and took his his quail there, going to sell them. And so he had every bird tied to a string, and the string to a ring that was on a stick in the ground. And so all of those quail out there, and each one going around and around and around that stick. And finally, one of the uh, one of the so-called uh, uh, Brahmin, uh, Hindu Brahmin, uh, that you know that thinks more highly of 
animals than he should. Quails made to eat. Not, but anyway, he decided he loved those poor little birds so much, he, he purchased them from the farmer. And he paid the farmer for them. He said, now let them go. You know, he let them go. What do you mean, let them go? He said, just set them free. Let them go. Untime. Let them go. So, you know, he did. You know what they did? They just kept going in a circle. Round and around in a circle. No string on them. Just going around in a circle. Finally, he had to go over there and shoo them all away. You know what they did? They flew out there a little ways and landed and started going around in a circle. Let me tell you folks, listen, God never intended that we live our life going around in circles as though we were still bound to sin. He has made every provision to set us free and enable us to find victory in Jesus. And whenever you go down into the baptismal waters and there you are publicly professing that you've received Christ as your Lord and Savior, that you believe with all of your heart that He's delivered you from the penalty of sin and delivered you for a purpose that you might glorify Him through obedience to His Word. You are saying that I am going to live in newness of life. How dare you go right back to the pig slop you were living in before? Like a dog returning to its vomit. Or live your life just going around in circles. I'm glad that when He saved me, He set me free. He didn't say, look preacher, I'm going to save you and take you to heaven whenever you die. But I'm not, you're just going to have to change bar stools. And just each week or two, you can get another bar stool and another and closer and closer and closer to the door. Eventually, maybe I can get you out of this place. No, whenever He saved me, it's like the old song, He set me free. I got out of there. I no longer wanted to be there. And let me tell you, He doesn't want me spending my life going around in circles bound by any sin, whatever it is. You say, well, what I do is no worse than what somebody else does. What does that have to do with anything? What you do, what you do is an offense against a holy God. What you do is an insult to God who gave the life of His own dear Son to set you free from sin and you just keep going around in circles. Reckon yourself dead unto sin and get up and start living the life that God intended. Walk in newness of life. Because there, listen, there are good things that happen to those that do. And bad things that happen to those who don't. You've got to serve somebody. And you're going to choose one way or the other this morning. Let me say this, and I'm through. Nearly everything I've said has been in the context of you being a Christian. Because if you're a Christian, everything here pertains to you, how you can live a victorious life. If you're here this morning, and you've never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you don't have any hope of winning against sin. Except this. 
That is that you come to Jesus and trust Him as your Lord and Savior. You can forget everything else I've said this morning except that if you're not saved. And He's not willing that you would perish, but rather that you would come to repentance. Would you trust Him this morning? Or if you're here and you've been saved, but you've been going around in circles, and you finally come to your senses and you'll say, I am sick and tired of spending my life going around in circles. I want to walk in newness of life. I want to use my life as a servant of righteousness that I might please God. And I'm making that choice right here, right now, this morning. Would you do that while we stand and as we sing? Our Father in heaven, how we thank you this morning for your loving kindness. We thank you, Lord, for having devised a plan way, way back yonder in eternity. Even before we were ever born, even before we even come to realize what our needs were, you had a plan and you set it in motion and sent your only begotten Son into this world who lived a virtuous life and then died vicariously there on the cross, paying our sin debt. And how we thank You for Jesus this morning, for the salvation that He provides to every person who will trust Him. And may that be someone here this morning. Lord, for those of us that are saved, help us to live life to the fullest as You intended, that we be not defeated by sin but that we might win over sin. For we beg it in Jesus' name. Now as we stand and while we sing, you come, those awaiting baptism that have already presented themselves, you may be dismissed at this time. One of our deacons and one of the ladies will meet you there. If you haven't presented yourself, you come just now. It's three.